Coaches, thank you for checking out Keep Your Pads Down, the podcast for all things concerning the defensive line. Happy Thanksgiving week to you. I hope that you are taking some time out of this week to reflect on the blessings in your life and, and letting those around you know how much you appreciate them. You know, I, I love Thanksgiving, and it, I got to tell you, it annoys me a little bit because every year it seems like you know Christmas edges a little closer and a little closer, just swallowing up Thanksgiving altogether. You know, I mean, like I, I love Christmas, but we can't just ignore Thanksgiving. It's there, and, and here, okay. So here's my appeal to football coaches as to why we need to limit our celebration of Christmas to I would say after Thanksgiving's over. Like you know, everybody's passed out in their tryptophan coma after Thanksgiving uh, lunch. You know, the Cowboys game is over. Uh, all that, all those things have happened. All right, then now let's we can start breaking out the Christmas decorations and things like that. Uh, turn on the Christmas music. Uh, but uh, but uh, b- before that, no, that, that that's a no go. And, and here's why. Here here again. Here's my appeal to football coaches as we, as why we need to to limit our, our celebration of Christmas. You know why is football season so much more fun to watch? It has 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 more drama, more intrigue than, than other sports. It's because the season is so much shorter than like basketball or baseball, for example. You know, basketball started, you know, a few weeks ago. They don't wrap that thing up till June. Baseball, I love baseball. One of my favorite sports to watch. But good grief, it goes from April to October. About about July, August, you kind of sort of lose track of your team a little bit and pick back up in the postseason, you know, and 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 so that's what's going to happen to Christmas. You know, pretty soon we're gonna we're gonna blow some fireworks on Fourth of July and then start dragging out the Christmas stuff. And before you know it, we're never not celebrating Christmas. And those trashy people who keep their Christmas lights up all year, everybody will be like that. So anyway, let's chill with the Christmas celebrations for a few more days. Hold off. We got Thanksgiving coming. And, and I feel like, again, maybe this is me being a middle child and always getting kind of uh, overlooked as the middle child. And I feel like Thanksgiving is kind of the, the, the middle child of holidays. Uh, let's, let's give Thanksgiving its due. Okay, now, wow, I, I got off on a tangent a little bit there. Sorry, kind of got fired up. I guess I, I, guess I uh, have a little bit of an ax to grind. But anyway, let's reel this thing back in and, and talk about... Today's guest, one of whom I'm really excited about. Today, we're talking with former University of Texas Longhorn and Texas high school football coach, Coach Neil Tweedy. Coach Tweedy grew up in Lucas, Texas and attended Allen High School where he was an All-State offensive tackle for the Eagles before heading to Austin to play for Coach Mack Brown and the Longhorns. Tweedy was a four-year letter winner for the Horns where he played tackle, defensive end, and tight end for the Horns. While at Texas, Coach Tweedy was named a semifinalist for the Dratty Award, which recognizes an NCAA football player for his academic success, performance on the field, and exemplary community leadership. And he was also a member of the 2005 National Championship team led by Vince Young, who of course beat the USC Trojans in the 2006 Rose Bowl in definitely one of the greatest college football games ever played. After he wrapped up his playing days at Texas, Coach Tweedy GA'd for the Longhorns on the defensive side of the ball before heading to Clear Lake High School in Houston to coach offensive line. From Clear Lake, Coach Tweedy headed to Trophy Club, Texas, to coach at Byron Nelson High School, where he spent six seasons coaching the defensive line, outside linebackers, and became the special teams coordinator there as well. From there, Coach Tweedy left Byron Nelson to help open up a brand-new school in Denton called Denton Braswell, 
where he coached inside linebackers before heading to Chisholm Trail High School as a defensive coordinator. Coach Tweedy got out of coaching a couple seasons ago to pursue a career in private business, but i got to tell you, his fire for the game of football is still blazing hot, and he has some great stuff for us today. Now, when we recorded this episode, I was battling a little bit of a head cold, so excuse any hacking you hear in the background, but you know what? Hey, players play, and so so we had to get it done, and we got it done, and, and so uh, I apologize beforehand uh, about anything, you know, any background noise I wasn't able to cover up, but... But anyway, today Coach Tweedy and I talk about what it takes to build up a brand new football program from scratch, defensive line coaching progression, and talk about the time he caught the wrath of Will Muschamp when Coach Tweedy was his GA at Texas. All of that and more coming up on episode number 38 of KYPD. Okay, well, Coach Tweedy, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to talk some ball with you today. And I guess before we jump into our topics that, that we have for, for the day, let's talk about your days as a player because, you know, you came through two really outstanding programs here in the state of Texas. So let's start there. Talk to us about your journey through the game of football as a player. Just wanted to say thank you. Uh, I know that this podcast is, is uh, an awesome resource for, for a bunch of guys. So appreciate you doing it, man. It's, it's, it's a good deal. Um, as far as my, uh, my, my playing days, you know, I, I, I played at Allen and, uh, Allen is an awesome program and has, and has done a really good job building things up. <clears throat> uh, since I left, I, I graduated in 01. Um, uh, but the best thing about Allen, you know, was, uh, when we were little, when we were ASA kids, you know, we, we all, all the kids that played together, you know, went <clears throat> all the way through Allen and there was a real sense of loyalty among, among the kids that played together, uh, you know, from freshman year all the way through senior year. Uh, and that was, a, that was an awesome program. I had really, really good coaches, you know, got, a, you know, Mike Carter is still there. Um, Amy Todd was a coach that, that influenced me, Jim Bob Puckett, Dean Jackson. Those guys were, were really, really good coaches um, and, uh, you know, did a really good job instilling fundamentals and uh, – uh, you know, the hard work, uh, tough nose mentality. Uh, it was a great, it was a great experience for me, a, a solid program to be a part of. Um, and then, you know, from there I got an opportunity obviously to, to play at Texas and, uh, earned a scholarship there. And that was a great experience as well. It was a definitely a different experience. You know, you go from, it was Allen at the time was a pretty small town and, um, or small, relatively speaking to the way it is now. But, uh, but the guys that grew up together and played football in the ASA together were the same guys that started on Friday nights, and then you end up at and then I end up at Texas, and and that is an absolutely different environment. You know, you're I had to fight uh, first of all showing up at Texas and being completely starstruck by everybody that was there. You know, you you look across the practice field and everybody's got a white helmet on with an orange logo, an orange Longhorn logo, and you just you know it just makes your heart race. But uh, Outside of that, man, it was it, you had to fight for your job every single day. You know, it was a very different environment. Like there was very little loyalty to anybody at any time. Like you were you were trying your very best to stay on the field and to get an opportunity to get reps. And uh, and the coaches were super demanding. And and I mean, they were tough on you every single step of the way. I mean, not to say that the Allen coaches weren't, but man, it just it was. Uh, 
it was a, it was a, an extremely different environment, you know, something that I was not used to, uh, but uh, but definitely made you a better player. Imagine coming from those two programs that you had really experienced a lot of a lot of highlights uh, for, from your time playing for both of those those programs. So, what we're talk about some of those some of those memories or, or memorable games or moments that you experienced as a player, either at Allen or at Texas. Man, uh, at Allen uh, back in those days, uh, Allen and Plano ISD were were pretty strong rivals. Still, I mean, I know Allen recently has run away with that with that series, and they're, they're they dominate all of district play every year but man every single week we played a plano school it was an absolute dogfight. uh we the game plans were you know it was always like the plano coaches are stealing our sides and you know there was always a uh, a degree of, of of that kind of stuff going on but man it was uh those were absolutely crazy games i mean and we had a we had a kid a really special athlete that played for us named jt perry who made some pretty phenomenal, phenomenally spectacular plays. I mean, even as a sophomore, um, was making crazy highlight, you know, kind of Randy Moss type plays, running punts back for touchdowns. And anyways, it was a, those were crazy days. Um, but then, you know, you know, Texas too. I mean, you talk about you know a national championship run the year before. You talk about uh, uh, you know a Rose Bowl win and. Uh, really successful programs and Mac Brown's, you know, the height of his tenure was, was exciting times. Um, you know, you have people all over the place telling you how great you are and, and, and that, uh, that kind of mentality is crazy. You know, you have to, you, you can't, it was very, very easy to get a big head. So Cedric Benson was a, the late Cedric Benson was a special guy, you know, God rest his soul. He was, uh, he was a hell of a competitor and, uh, and, uh, I, I got to watch, you know, um, Guys like him and and uh, Roy Williams and and some of these top tier athletes give everything they had on the practice field every single day. Uh, watching watching Cedric Benson run power through the line of scrimmage and and guys like Derek Johnson and and Corey Redding meet him in the hole, just absolutely crush him and and you know he pops right back up like ready to run back to the hole for the next snap. It was. It was a uh, pretty inspiring. He uh, guys like that were were incredible, incredible athletes, and 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 super super tough. Well, I I, I would I would like to know. I'd be curious to know, and I'm sure other guys would as well. You know, you go you, to a program like Allen, to a program like the University of Texas. You know, both successful programs, and 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 both kind of at the time you were there, you were at Allen, at, at, at Allen right before they really became what we all know Allen to be now. And you're at Texas at really the highest point of their program in, in the last several years. So what was a, maybe a a commonality between both of those programs or some similarities between those two programs that made them so successful? I would I would say, uh, and, and even at the time, you know, even at Allen, I mean, we were – we were making playoff runs at Allen. I'm not, we didn't make it into the state title, but I, my, the way that I felt about it, that was, that was a super common thread was everybody was pulling in the same direction. You know, it was, there was no, like even at Allen. So in 2000, Todd Graham left Allen, uh, to go to rice, I believe. Um, and Joe Martin showed up and wanted to, wanted to, I mean, completely changed the culture at Allen. I mean, it was an entirely different team in 2001 than in 2000. And we had a really good team. We had really good football players on that team. And the one thing that 
that kind of stuck out to me was there were there were guys on the team that that did their very best to hold out, didn't want to be didn't want to buy into the Joe Martin culture. Um, and it was a very different culture than what uh, Todd Graham had established previously. But but they also were at the end of their careers. You know, some guys were never going to play football again. And they were like, you know what? Like, you know, let's grab the rope. And so and so everybody kind of bought into the culture. And, uh, and it was the same at Texas, man. Like, Doug. Them dudes were all bought in. Everybody was bought in. Everybody knew that they were part of something bigger than themselves. Everybody put their egos aside. I, I mean, I honestly say, I can honestly say that that was one of the big differences. Because even at Allen, we didn't have one or two or three standout players. Like, it was just a bunch of hard-nosed guys playing football. Now, granted, Texas, you know, had your had your cats like Vince Young and some of those top-tier athletes. But, but I mean, that general principle still – is the same. Everybody was everybody was rowing in the same direction. That that to me was the major was the major factor. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think we you know we we all uh, hear about that you know uh, you know guys buying into the culture and and I think it's interesting to hear that you know at both of those programs you know it wasn't necessarily athletes that you had but it was the fact that they were all bought in one hundred percent and pulling in the right direction and that was really what put both of those programs, uh, you know, over the top. Yeah, definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, you still, I mean, you still see it. There's, there's programs all over the place that have a, a lot of success when everybody is bought in, you know, that when, and I'm not, and I'm not talking about everybody knows the chance, you know, and everybody, and everybody breaks it out the same way. I'm talking about kids, athletes, trusting one another, you know, like that, like a deeper, like there's a deeper connection that that athletes will make to a program when they when they really do believe. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that's a, I think that's that's a different deal. Yeah, of course. So while you're at Texas, um, what what drew you to coaching football? Were there some guys uh, there at the university, or maybe guys from back when you were in high school who influenced you to, to pursue that as a profession? What what drew you to coaching? The story is the story is actually kind of interesting. I so being a I was I always had to be like a more cerebral player. Like I, I was not the I was not the fastest. I was not the most athletic. I was not the biggest. I I had to know the game. You know I had to know the game. And uh, some of the opportunities that I had to work with uh, coaches early on in my playing career at Texas, uh, Mac McCorder as an example. That guy will knows more football than and and has forgotten more football than I will ever remember. I mean, he's a phenomenal football coach, and uh, I just I just had a really deep appreciation for his his understanding, his his attention to detail, and and the way that he thought through the game. Um, and then moving forward, you know, there were a number of coaches on on Texas staff um, that were that were really inspirational to me just the way that they carried themselves and the way that they worked and the way they were able to speak to people and how uh, confident they were um, those and then and then and then beyond that there were guys uh, I, I, so long story short I got an opportunity to GA uh, following my my playing career there was a GA spot open I had already been in, I had already been enrolled and, and accepted into graduate school and that was an opportunity for me to step in and uh and so I asked about the opportunity, and the reason that I did was because there had already been GAs at Texas that were that were successful. Tom Herman is an example. 
So Tom Herman was a was a previous GA uh, major at the time, and just finished up his his uh, graduate assistantship and uh, was coaching. And uh, I just thought, man, this is a this is a crazy good opportunity uh, for me to get in with some really awesome coaches at the top, you know, at the top of their game. And uh, and the funny thing, there were actually there were actually guys at Texas that told me like, hey, listen, man. <laughs> If you can do anything other than coach, you should probably go do that. Yeah, and yeah. I am I'm really stubborn, and I am a, I'm a hard headed guy, and I, I I made up my mind that this was something that I really wanted to do, and these were the people that I really wanted to to be around, and uh, and from there, man, the rest is history. Talk about some the the, the places where you coached uh, while you were coaching ball in the state of Texas, and and how each of those places were unique, and you know maybe some highlights from those places. Okay, so uh, so early on, um, right out of uh, uh, college, right after my, my my graduate assistantship, I got a job as an offensive line coach. So it's funny, funny how things work. I played, I played majority of the time at college. I played offense, and um, when I took my GA role at Texas, uh, Greg Davis told me, he said, "Man, you do not need to worry about what size ball this is on because you'll probably end up on the defensive side. You need to embrace the opportunity." And so. Um, I, you know, I got a, I got an opportunity to GA at Texas uh, with Dwayne Aquina first year as a, as a, as his, his first year as the defensive coordinator, and then Will Mustang following that, uh, and so I was working with the DBs and the linebackers, um, and and that was an awesome opportunity. But I had always been an offensive guy, and so my first year out of, uh, out of Texas, I took a job at Clear Lake High School in Houston, and I was coaching. Uh, offensive line for the flex bone triple option. And that was, <laughs> that was yeah. a pretty fun time. Man. Yeah. Um, and so then following that, I, uh, I made my way back up to DFW. Uh, I coached at Byron Nelson High School for Brian Polk uh, and coached, the def- coached on the defensive side of the ball um, for, uh, for six years. And then uh, and I coached defensive line the majority of the time. And then my final year there, I coached uh, outside linebackers. And then at some point in there, I earned a special teams coordinator role and then following that, I took a job at uh, Denton Braswell High School in its very first year um, under Cody Moore. And I coached on the defensive side of the ball, I coached inside linebackers, uh, a little bit of outside linebackers. Uh, and then um, my final year, I was a defensive coordinator at Chisholm Trail High School. Um, but, uh, man, the crazy thing about, you know, Byron Nelson was um, – Byron Nelson was pretty much a brand new program. The, the, the year before I got there, they had opened the school. Uh, they played a JV schedule. Uh, they only had sophomores on campus. And then the year that I got there uh, was their first year as a varsity program. And it was, you know, it was obviously, as, as most people have seen with new programs in the state, it was tough sledding for there their for a couple of years. But uh, uh, I was super fortunate to be part of their, you know, first varsity win and first varsity playoff appearance. And, uh, building the culture there was was an awesome experience. I was, you know, really glad to be a part of it. Denton Braswell was was also a unique experience in that it was his first year, but um, it was their very first year as a varsity program uh, was their first year as a as a school, like the first year that the school opened. So yeah. they right out of the gates had to play some of the tougher teams in the state, you know, you're talking about your Denton Ryans and your, I mean, it was a, it was a really tough season. Um, and so those were, those were two, two pretty unique experiences uh, for the kids, for the coaches, for the parents, for the administrators. I mean, it was a, uh, they were two very different experiences for everybody. Um, 
and then obviously, uh, you know, my last stop at Chisholm Trail, I was a defensive coordinator, and that was a that was a good experience, you know, kind of take a system and 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 see it culminate on the field. But um, it was a it was definitely a, a fun journey, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that really kind of brings us to a topic, one of the topics we want to settle in on today, and that's just you know building the process of building up a program. And, and, you know, your experience really deals with programs kind of from the ground up and, and, and what it takes to build those up. But really, we could be talking about a program that you're walking into or that a coach may be walking into this offseason that uh, has been down for a while and, and needs a complete overhaul in its culture and facilities or expectations, uh, community support, et cetera. So talk about that process of of that of, of what it means or what it takes to build a new program and what are some some things that uh, must be considered when doing that okay so uh, building up a new program man is I mean obviously a, an ultra tall task anybody considering it man it better be you better not be faint of heart because it's it is definitely uh, a process um, the number one thing for me you know was looking back on it, I mean, obviously at, at Byron Nelson, I was a young coach, you know, and I was just along for the ride. Um, but, uh, at Byron Nelson, I definitely got to contribute a lot more, uh, to the building of that program. And, you know, kudos to Cody Moore and, and, you know, Jake Spurl and Colin Strahan, a bunch, all those guys that didn't Braswell just won their first playoff game. And they're actually about to play their second playoff game and, uh, got a share of the district title. So super excited for those guys. But, um, uh, man, the the number one thing for coaches and starting up programs is to buy in. You know what I mean? That that would be my number one thing. Like, it doesn't matter how ridiculous uh, some of the stuff sounds and and how how insurmountable some of the some of the stuff that is that you have to get done. You know, as the program moves forward, but buy in. You know, buy into the culture. Buy into the kids buy into the administration, you know, be a part of every, take ownership in everything that happens because, you know, the, the guys that are laying the foundation are the ones that the kids are going to look to, you know, when, when things get tough and things will get tough. Like things are going to, things are going to suck for a little while and that's all right, man. That's, that's, that's part of the growing pains that you experience as you build a program. But uh, man, the buy-in to me is the number one most important thing. Yeah, it definitely, like, as you mentioned, it takes someone with really uh, a lot of resolve and, and a lot of patience, I, I could imagine, to go into a program and know that you're going to struggle and know that it's going to be tough for a long time, but also knowing that, you know, if if you can't get that buy-in from everybody on staff, that that that, that ultimately you will see, uh, see the program turn and, and see, you know, those things like... Uh, just like you mentioned, uh, didn't Braswell win their first playoff game last week and, and getting ready to play their second one now uh, this week? So, uh, what you, you talked about some challenges. What go into more detail about what are those challenges? Some specific challenges unique to starting a new program or being at a school where the program is fairly new. Okay, so the, to me, the number one challenge that you have to overcome is, is uncertainty, right? So. Uh, the kids, the coaches, the administration, the parents, there is uncertainty everywhere. You know, nobody knows anything about, like, now you, you may have a great resume walking into a brand new program or, or rebuilding a program, but the, the parents don't know you. 
You know what I mean? The kids don't know you. I mean, even even the guys that you're working with, you know, it's everybody is bringing in a wealth of experience from all different backgrounds, all different cultures, and you and you know, as a as a leader of a program, your job is to take is to aggregate all of that, all of those different experiences, and turn them into something that's productive for for the football team. Like just the uncertainty that everybody has, and the anxiety associated with that that uncertainty is can be debilitating for a program. You know, and yeah, yeah. and coaches that coaches that um, you know are 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 unable to to take the reins and and get the and and, and have answers to que- to hard questions like. That stuff that that's what you know is going to slow a program down. I, I think I was um, really fortunate to be involved with the two co- the two head coaches that I had because those guys love to talk through stuff. You know what I mean? They love to get feedback from coaches. We would spitball and throw stuff up against the wall and and see what stuck. I mean, you know, if you're if you're talking about rebuilding a program or building a program from scratch, like man, like that's the time. Like, you, uh, granted the expectations for that program aren't going to be super high. Like nobody is expecting you in most circumstances to walk in and win games and make a big, deep playoff run right away. So why not experiment with what you believe would be the best fit for the kids in the program and the coaches in the program and the parents in the program, like spitball ideas, you know, figure out uh, what's going to make these kids tick. uh, What's going to motivate them? Uh, And, and then, and not to be, not to be uh, afraid to ask the older kids in the program, what they think the program should be about. I think Cody Moore did a great job with that. The kids, the kids in the program as freshmen and sophomores and juniors got to decide on the, or had input into like the team, uh, uh, standards of, of, uh, of the culture. I mean, that's a huge deal. Like you, you get kids to buy in that way and, and you got them and you got them for life. And, um, anyways, that, that was a huge challenge. I mean, you know, you talk about, um, uh, kids that previously coming from, you know, as, as an example at, at Denton Braswell, uh, there were kids coming from different high schools. That's another huge, huge challenge. So when they opened the new school, the brand new school, a bunch of those kids had already attended, uh, Denton Ryan high school for two years. And you want to talk about a tough culture change, man. That's that's a hard deal to go from a program that is making semifinal runs every single year to a brand new program where you're not sure you're going to win a game. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. that's a tough that's a tough that's a tough sell for those kids. Um, and that was a huge challenge. Uh, and then you know you had and then when uh, when Byron Nelson opened, uh, obviously those that, that was a little bit different experience, uh, but it it was still it was still a tough, a tough thing for kids to step onto the field for the first time on Friday night and have nobody to look up to. Like, hey, man, you know, to have a senior around to tell you, hey, look, the lights on Friday nights are kind of bright, man, and the crowd is a little bit loud and the band is a little bit loud. But to have no senior leadership and no one to look to, that is a huge, giant challenge. And, and ultimately, in those situations, the kids look to the coaches. You know, yeah. they look to the coaches to see how to respond and how to act. And, and if you haven't spelled it out for them and if you haven't made it easy for them to swallow and, and prepared them for that, then, you know, you, you shouldn't expect them to uh, to respond uh, appropriately. I mean, I'm, you just have to do a lot of prep work for those kids getting ready for Friday nights. Yeah, I, I just all those things you mentioned, I mean, that 
and I'm sure you could add, you know, we could we could sit here and we could add many more things to that list of, of challenges that come with opening up a program. But just that, just those things you mentioned right there, uh, it's, it's a pretty daunting list of things. And so, again, it goes back to that has to be a very special head coach, a very special coaching staff to know all that stuff is about to happen and, and, and understand those things and do it anyway and, and be completely bought in. And so I think it just goes back to reinforce your first point, which was you, know, you had to have buy-in from everybody. Uh, in order for that thing to work. So we talked about the challenges that, that are associated with with starting a new program. What about the uh, advantages or the cool things that, that come along with starting a new program? You mentioned one about you know the kids kind of being able to have a lot of input on what the standards are going to be for the program and, and them you know kind of laying the foundation for, for other people behind them. But what, are, what else? What are some advantages to starting a new program? So, so I would say one of the, one of the huge advantages is, is you know, you're obviously at, at getting Braswell, we were not operating with a full staff. You know, we were, we didn't have a freshman JV varsity staff. Like that's not how it works. But, uh, that, that, uh, that was kind of a blessing in disguise because it gave us an opportunity to work with the program on every level. I right. mean, we saw kids at Nabo middle school all the time. We saw, you know, we saw the sub varsities every week. We saw the varsity kids every week. We got to work out with those kids. I mean, it was pretty awesome having, you know, two athletic periods a day working freshman, JV, varsity. Like, we got to work with those kids. I mean, and, and not to say that sub-varsity coaches can't get it done, but it's just I, I just I felt way better about being able to coach my kids from bottom to top. Like, that was a huge advantage for me. Uh, every kid was speaking the same language immediately, you know, <laughs> day one after right. I was done with them, you know. So, um that was a huge, huge advantage. Uh, the other positive is an opportunity, you know, to rebuild a program and to is is to go in and and start fresh with a, with a set of administrators and parents and really get to establish um, the cultural expectations within the program. You know, it's like as much as, as as important as it is to have kids buy into the program, it's just as important to have administration and parents buy into the program. You know, it, yeah. uh, I've been a, I've been a part of a program where the where the parents weren't one hundred percent on board. You know what I mean? Like that that kind of stuff happens. And and even administration. And I'm not saying administration at a, at a school. I'm talking about upper administration. Like it's a it's a hard deal. You know, if you don't have approval from everybody and if you haven't laid out the expectations of the program to everybody who has a stake in the program. Right. Uh, I think that's I think that's a, a good advantage for a coach that's that's rebuilding. You know, is it it's an opportunity to communicate with everybody on every level. And if you and if you take advantage of those opportunities, then everybody's on the same page and every parent knows exactly what's happening in the program and they know how to get a hold of you and what's appropriate to talk about and what's not appropriate to talk about. And they know what the expectation is of their child. Anyways, that, that to me, uh, if you approach it the right way is a, is a huge advantage for coaches starting a new program. Yeah. Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, especially if you're a young coach looking to get into high school, football in the state of Texas, you know, most of the time you're going to have to go the junior high route. But I would imagine that another advantage would be that if you're a young guy looking to break in and you're wanting to coach varsity football, that going to a program where that's brand new could offer you an opportunity to do that. Is that right? Oh, most certainly. We had we had some, uh, I mean, we had some pretty green coaches in both programs 
You know, it's a, it's an opportunity because I mean, I mean, really, coaches coaches like that have got a, have got a, a youthful approach on the game. They uh, they can they can connect with those kids really quickly. Uh, and yeah, that's absolutely a, a really good pathway for a young coach. Yeah, you know, sometimes we can get on, you know, young coaches for being um, overly optimistic or having, you know, rose-colored glasses on when it comes to things. But that's really a pretty good quality to have when you're starting a brand new program. I'd have to imagine. Oh, absolutely, man. There's, there's, there is way too much stuff to complain about to have guys <laughs> to not have guys with an optimistic viewpoint. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, so what what advice would you give to coaches? You know, because we have some schools in, in this state who will be playing varsity football for the first time in 2020. We have some schools that are still a couple years away, but they're kind of at that point where, like like y'all were at um, at Braswell, where you know maybe they're going to be playing a, a JV schedule this next year. And then as we get further in the offseason, you're going to have coaches who are taking over programs who are uh, in need of a complete overhaul. Maybe it's an existing program, but that's just been sort of dormant for a while or, or uh, again, really just needing a, a, a complete cultural, culture change. So what advice would you give to coaches who will be doing, doing that rebuilding or doing that building of programs this offseason? One, of one of the big things, okay, so now, granted, I don't have – I don't have a head coach's perspective on this on this issue. What I will say to coaches that are going to be a part of the process is that it's very important that one you either contribute to the long term objective of the program and where where the head coach wants to be in the long term, or you or you understand exactly where the head coach wants to be in the long term and what the short term goals are to get there and be a, and buy into that process. I, I you know one thing that. Uh, that kind of separated coaches that made it through the process of rebuilding and the coaches that didn't were the ones that were present, right, for the development of the program, and they weren't upset about the direction that it went. Right. So regardless of whether it's your idea or not, the coaches that bought in, whether they agreed with it or not, bought bought into whatever principle or whatever idea or if they bought in and they were 100% committed to that head coach and that head coach's vision, those are the coaches that made it. Yeah. The ones that didn't make it were the ones that were upset about, oh, well, we're not running, we're not going to slant our defensive front, you know, or we're not going to run a sluggo on third down. You know, just like little petty stuff, right, that you can that, that you can throw over your shoulder and say, you know what, I get it, I understand it's it's part of the head coach's long term vision. I'm going to buy in. Those those guys never made it. So for me, number one is buying in. Right, just like it's a common thread. Right, so buying yeah. into the program and what the long term goal is, and, and and two is be super involved and and own it. You know, own the process, whether it's good or bad. Own it, and uh, man, from there it's 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 all about creating what you want in your meeting room you know like i I, for me you know i was a an absolute a-hole on the football field you know i i I wouldn't let my kids get away with anything but once we got into the meeting room and once the kids came over to the house for you know cornhole and eating brisket like i was a guy that really 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 tried to create a little microculture inside the program yeah you know, and, and for those kids to feel special within a program is really important. And 
I mean, and that, I mean, I guess that, I guess that applies beyond building a new program, but I think it's super important, super vital in building a program because there's nobody really to look up to. Right. Um, you know, the seniors, the seniors that are, that are there in a program that's, that's been dead a while are not invested in the program. And for brand new programs, those seniors don't exist. So to me, man, it was really important that those kids trusted me and that they, they knew, they knew what my expectations were. And, and then we, you know, shared in each other's triumphs and losses and, uh, and creating those connections was really important. Yeah. Yeah. I want to touch on a couple of things you mentioned. First of all, you said, you know, you don't have a head coach's perspective on this, which I think is fine because most people listening to this uh, are probably assistant coaches and, and who, um, you know, if this, if this question does pertain to them, you know, they're probably wanting to know how can I, in my limited role as a position coach in this new program or this program that's been struggling for a long time, how can I have an impact? You know, how can I help turn this thing around? And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, creating an own, your own subculture within, you know, within your team, but with your position group. And I think that's extremely important. And so I, I would just ask again, kind of expand on that a little bit. Like, how do you do that? Like, I'm a young assistant coach or I'm an assistant coach on a program that wants to have an impact. How do I go about setting that, that subculture within my position group that also matches the culture of the team? Man, that's um, that's a that's a good question. Uh, to me, you know, um, I I was just super. I just tried to be genuine with my kids. Um, I'm a like outside of outside of football practice and games. You know, I'm a goofy guy. Like I laugh, I cut up. Uh, you know, I make fun of people. I like people to make fun of me. You know, that's just kind of the way that I am. And uh, you know, I didn't pull any any punches with my kids. You know, I I showed them, like I'd smile with them, I'd laugh with them. I um, that that was being genuine is a huge part. You can't be you can't be something you're not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Being genuine is is really important. Kids, and and that goes the same in the classroom. Those these coaches that are listening that are in the classroom, you can't you can't pretend to be something that you're not. Uh, so that was that would be my uh, you know my my first piece of advice. My my. My second piece of advice was was would be to to create an identity right amongst the group of players that that you're coaching that aligns with what you want defensively. You know, with your coordinator and with your head coach. So, so it, I mean, I remember, and this is and what's funny about this is I pulled a lot of this stuff from my my time at Texas. Uh, and what, and what's funny about it is it was not the coaches producing these micro environments, these micro cultures inside the Texas culture. It was the players, Yeah, you know, and I, I always thought it was really, really interesting to see how these players responded to each other in meeting rooms and, and especially, you know, the only meeting room, or I was in the offensive line meeting room and the tight end meeting room and the defensive line meeting room. And, and then when I was at GA, I was in the, the linebacker room and the DB room. So I got to feel how all these guys interacted and talked to each other. Like, like Sergio Kendall at one point uh, from the University of Texas did an awesome thing. Man, he went out and talked to uh, I can't remember who it was and had a, the scozes, you know, the rubber the rubber wristbands made. Yep. Uh, and it and it just said Texas football, be Texas tough, or you know, so, just something, just the small stuff like that. You know, probably cost him 
15 bucks, but he had the entire linebacker core wearing them. I mean, at one point, you know, Mac, Mac did a great job of creating kind of these cultures. He produced, uh, dog tags, you know, for the, uh, for the football team, man. And everybody just, you know, a, a three dollar set of dog tags, man. You wouldn't believe how how important that those stinking dog tags were to everybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But for me, but for me, you know, I, I just uh, to me creating that microculture, man, is, is is almost like you know we would get talking in the meeting room, especially with kids that had been in my room for a long time. And if somebody were to walk in, it would be hard for them. It would be hard for them to interpret exactly what we were saying, you know, because we it was yeah. almost like we had our own language. When we would talk on film about squeezing and spilling pullers and eyes are right and your lead step and your dominant, your man hand versus it was, you know, there, there was all these different keywords and, and, and all of that stuff, you know, and, and I never let them talk the way we don't talk. Like you, you speak the same language as me. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to, if you're going to talk about playing a five tech out of base, out of a, you know, if you're going to talk about playing a base technique out of a five, out of a five, then you're going to use the same words that I'm using. Right. And, and, and that kind of stuff like that expectation made kids think the way that I thought. And to me, once we were all on the same page, when we were all speaking the same language, everything else is easy, man. Like it, then it's just having fun. You know, I mean, like, uh, I just setting those expectations early, man, you know, and, and the other thing is letting kids know that you care about them. You know, I, I mean, early on and early on, you know, before every year I would, I would uh, produce a a defensive line manual or an inside linebacker manual or whatever for my position. And a bunch of the stuff that I would write in there was, would be stuff about culture. Um, You know, I, I, and it just, it was like, I care about you. You know, I want you to care about the program. I want you to care about your teammates. The expectation is that, it doesn't matter how big or small or how uh, how big your role is or how small your role is or whether you're a varsity player or a JV player, we're all part of the same heartbeat. And, and you know, we're going to do this thing together. So that's just some little stuff, you know, that yeah. that I that I really used as a, as a position coach. So Yeah, I think that's all great stuff, especially uh, as we are, are, you know, in the postseason here for most of us in Texas or some of us starting the offseason is – you know, that's something to consider as you head in, as we get into into this offseason, this upcoming offseason, to think about, you know, to do kind of a climate check with your own position group and where are you uh, as far as all that goes. Are you all speaking the same language? Are you creating uh, or at least giving your guys the room or the, the ability to create that culture, uh, that, sub-cul- that subculture that they're all taking ownership in? Because, like you said, sometimes it can be player-led. But I think that if the coach is not creating that environment to allow them to do that, then it won't happen. You know, like if the guys, don't, if, they, if they don't want to be around each other and be around you, then they're and they're not going to create their own culture. They're all going to be getting out of there or, you know, huddling up in the locker room talking about you. Um, right. But I, you know, so I do think that 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 it's up to us as coaches at least to create an environment where they feel, you know, empowered to create that that sort of culture. Yeah, definitely, man. Like when when kids are when when kids are willing to speak and and uh, willing to give their two cents on stuff, and and when they don't have a problem talking to you candidly, like that's a that's an important step. You know, you shouldn't that, those kinds of conversations shouldn't be taken for granted. For yeah, sure. yeah. Well, okay. I you uh, actually became recommended for this podcast based on you know not the fact that you played ball at Texas or at Allen or 
uh, you know, anything like that, but that you're a, uh, a really sharp defensive line coach. So I definitely want to make sure we cover some defensive line stuff uh, in our talk today. So let's go back to when you were coaching D-line and, and talk a little about your philosophy for coaching the defensive line and, and some essential fundamentals and skills that, that all D-linemen should have. This is the good stuff, man. Now we're into the good stuff. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, man, so so I was uh, as a defensive line coach, and um, early on, man, I, I you know as a young coach, I I really didn't know how well what I was teaching my kids was fitting into the scheme, and I and I, I you know I I just I wasn't entirely sure of myself as a young coach, but man, from the very get go, I just taught I taught what I had learned. Um, as a defensive line coach, man, I, I think number the most important thing for coaching D-line in high school is the skill progression, right? So the skill progression for high school is different than the skill position for uh, – I'm sorry, the varsity skill pro- progression is different than sub-varsity, which is different than freshman, which is different than middle school. Like, no, I, didn't te- I didn't teach any of those kids the same way or at the same speed. Uh, the, the, it's got to differ, right? So – some of those kids can't, you know, in middle school can't hardly get into a three-point stance and, and don't have – their fingers aren't strong enough or their wrists aren't strong enough to, to get into a stance. And, and you can't – and, uh, you know, when I would speak with middle school coaches at our clinics where the middle school coaches would talk to, uh, to the varsity coaches about how to teach this stuff, it's like, man, like, I mean, how does their stance look? You know, like, like we got to get that – we got to get the, the fundamentals right before we can before we can start, start talking about slants and blitzes and stunts and – pressures like that 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 is way 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 at the end of this at the other end of the spectrum so uh but you know when you talk when you talk about the highest level players you know the the, the varsity football players i always taught i always taught them we're, we're going to crowd the line of scrimmage uh we're if, if the offensive coaches during practice our bits aren't upset with us about oh well they're in the neutral zone you know whining and crying like offensive coaches do then we're not doing something right. Like crowd the line of scrimmage, get as close to the football, get as close to the line of scrimmage as absolutely possible, and make them make you back back up. Uh, and then I taught them a huge part of that, uh, or a huge uh, parlay into, into uh, the next skill is coming off the ball. Right. So we are as soon as the ball moves, as soon as the guy in front of you moves, we're moving. We're firing off the ball full speed, 100 miles an hour. Um, and then there's there's I mean I could. I could go on with this stuff for a long, long time. So if there's something that you want to go back and talk about, feel free. Okay. Um, but just uh, some of the stuff that I've written down. So we would always fight pressure. Uh, our eyes are always right. Uh, we wouldn't. We would never let an offensive player leave the line of scrimmage unless we wanted them to. Um, our our stances and weight distribution uh, would empower our ability to do our jobs. So we would change our stance. We would change our weight distribution on our feet and our hands uh, in order for us to accomplish what the defense needed us to do. Um, and then, uh, I mean, the kids, you know, you get into zone pressures and, and all the kids want to, they all want to drop into coverage and they all want to, you know, they want to do funky stuff. They want to line up in a wide five and, and, or in a ghost nine and rush the passer from a ghost nine. Well, if they want to do all that fun stuff, that's cool, man. And I'll teach them and I'll, and I'll give them everything I got, but Without learning how to play a base technique and without learning exactly what to do in base defense, we're not doing any of that fun stuff. So you want the fun stuff, you got to do the, you got to do the, you got to get the base techniques right in your sleep. You yep. know, so that that's, yep. I mean, that was kind of the basic philosophy um, for uh, 
kind of what what I had as uh, as a position coach. So yeah, well let's let's go back and and talk about you know you mentioned which I thought was interesting and not something I'd ever heard of before, or at least the way you put it that you know um, because I'm at a school now where I am coaching. Everybody, you know, every D, basically every D lineman in the program. So seventh grade B team kids on up to our varsity Friday night guys, and and right. so I think to hear you say, you know, the progression is is different. You know, definitely the speed that you teach those guys is, and I think that sometimes it's tough when you go from coaching those varsity guys all the time and you're kind of blowing and going to really dial it back for those seventh grade kids and say, all right, you know, today we're just going to focus on getting in a proper stance. And that may be all we cover for this whole week, you know, uh, because it's <laughs> kind of like teaching kids up in the weight room. If that part's not right, then it, then none of the other stuff is going to happen. So I think that's a good thing to remember, especially if you're a middle school coach or if you're coaching those guys is, man, start slow. You know, don't get caught mm-hmm. up in all the all the – the drills on Twitter and, and online and, and man, just get them in a great stance. And if, and I know if you were to ask, you know, for those guys who are uh, getting kids from other middle schools, so they're not coaching those kids. I know that we would all love to, Hey, if our kids, if those guys can come to us and get in a great stance and, and have some knowledge about, you know, steps and keys, that's awesome. But if they can, if they can do those things, we'll, we'll get them up on it, you know, coach them up on everything else. It really sucks trying to coach up, uh, you know, freshmen, sophomores, and juniors on how to get in a stance. So I thought that yeah. was interesting. So talk to talk to me a little bit more about you know that specifically. You know your stance, and you, you mentioned weight distribution about how you're coaching that stuff up. Man, so uh, you know obviously, so one of the one of the more important things that um, and one of the, the the fundamental drills that we did uh, even for the middle schoolers. So this was a drill that we could apply across you know every skill level from seventh grade on up. Was um, you know what um, uh, what I call the hip throw. So, so the kids would line up in their, in their typical stance. Like, oh, first of all, you have to correct the stance. And then I'd set, you know, we, we were, we would come off the ball quickly, but we would, we would take what we call power steps, right? So they would take two, they would take two, two power steps, so little bitty six inch steps, uh, immediately coming out of their stance. Uh-huh. And, uh, and they would, and I would require, uh, that they would, take their two steps and then stop their feet and throw their hips. And so what we would do is we would take a step over and we would lay it down on the ground in front of them and we would set cones six inches in front of both their feet. So they would take their two steps and they weren't allowed to touch the cone. And then they would shoot their hands and their hips. And that was all there. And then they would freeze in midair. Right. And so that obviously when you take your steps and you shoot your hips, you're going to fall forward. Well, they would fall forward down on top of the step over. And that, that to me, was a great drill for the young ones because they they didn't really understand what six inches was. Yeah, you know what I mean. They didn't yeah. understand really what it meant to throw your hips. They didn't really understand uh, as soon as the ball moves, you move. And so right. we would take a stick ball and we would take cones and we would, you know, as soon as the ball moves, they're taking two six inch steps. They're going to throw their hips. They're going to shoot their hands and they're going to land on the bag in front of them. And and that you know that that right there, if we can just do that, we're going to be I mean, not okay, but we're going to be in good shape. Like we can, I can teach a lot of stuff. If you'll come off the ball and throw your hips, like that will take you a long, long, long way. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And and I think that those are some things that we got to make sure 
our guys know uh, and I think you you know you made the great point of you know they have to earn the right to do the the fun stuff you know you hear that a lot you know mm-hmm. like like guys have to earn the right to rush the passer you know they got to be able to do right. they got to be able to win first and second downs in order to earn the right to pass rush on third down and I think it's the same mm-hmm. way with this is those guys have to get those skills down in order to 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 move on to graduate to other things. So talk to me about some other drills that you that you have uh, that you like to use to, to teach to teach skills and fundamentals. Okay, so um, moving on to 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 some of the the you know the higher level progressions. Like like obviously that 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 hip hip throw drill is is a good one, and um, you know we we focused really really heavily on. Um, uh, on our eyes. So the, and this is still the case, you know, we, I've been out of the game now for a couple of years, but man, offense loves eye candy and they yeah. love motions and they love jet sweeps and they love, you know, the, the whole power read concept and, and trying to get defensive linemen to run up the field. And, and even, you know, you even talk about like some of your quarterback counter stuff where you got a jet motion and then you got counter action underneath and the quarterback's going to, and you're fixing to get if you're five technique and paying attention and doesn't know what's going on, he's about to get the living pee pee trapped out of him. So, um, getting those kids' eyes right was extremely, extraordinarily important. And uh, I, you know, although we would do a bunch of different variations of the drill, uh, we would I would pair them up and have you know kids down block, kids reach block. But anytime they would do that stuff, I would use a whistle and I'd stand behind them. And I would always want to see which direction their helmet was pointed. So if they, you know, we were a strike and control defense up front. So if the offensive tackle releases inside or the center releases down and inside, our job was to get hands on, squeeze, and then take our eyes to pullers. And if I look down the line, right, these kids all standing up with their hands on a, you know, on a pretend tackle or on a, on a dummy tackle, and all their heads aren't turned in the right direction, Right, and I can and you can see it. It's very easy to see. Yeah, uh, you know that that I have to line them up, and we're going to do it again until everybody's heads are correct, until everybody's eyes are correct. Uh, and and it's also super easy to see on film when a defensive end is watching a, a jet motion run across his face, and he's trying to see if the jet motion's been handed off. I mean, it's 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 really easy to see, and it's really easy to, to correct a kid on film. But uh, it, it takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of repetition. Um, you know, and obviously, that 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 eye progression can change based on based on the kid's uh, responsibility to the defense. Yeah. Um, so that was really so that so so eye progression was really important. Um, the next big thing that that we taught them was that we're always pressure fighters. So uh, I don't you know I don't know if if you guys see much of it, but out of out of ten per out of your ten personnel and eleven personnel looks out of one back zone, you'll get um, what what I refer to as like a zone wash. So instead of, you know, your backside tackle and guard trying to scoop out your four technique or your five technique or your nose guard, it's they, they'll run zone action and then put their hands on the back of your shoulder pads and run you down the line of scrimmage and the back will cut off the backside, right? It looks like zone front side and then the back will cut all the way back across the formation. Yeah. And so with that, you know, when that started becoming a lot more prevalent and guys not truly running a zone scheme but running like a zone wash – uh, I had to teach my kids to fight pressure. And so um, it wasn't just about coming off the ball and striking. It was about feeling what was happening. Uh, and so 
if, a t- if you feel like a tackle is trying to run you down the line of scrimmage or a center is trying to run you down the line of scrimmage, then you got to drop your hips and you have to fight pressure. Uh, and so that, you know, I, I, it's funny, man. I, I got a lot of film on, on that particular technique because my kids, for whatever reason, my kids really decided that it was going to be important to them that they, they weren't going to get washed down the line of scrimmage. They, they <laughs> took a lot of pride in that. But anyways, yeah. uh, you know, you, 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 you have a kid that's that's honed in on his man. Like uh, this was particularly important for nose guards is uh, they would come off the ball and they strike to center and, and they would have to feel a guard double team it. And as right. soon as they felt it, they would have to fight the pressure. You know, so that was we would run tons and tons of drills. Uh, mostly it was mostly it was uh, uh, read and react drills. You know, where you got yeah. two offensive linemen in front and a defensive lineman and. I'm standing behind the defense directing. We're either a double team or we're scooping or we're washing or we're, you know, down block pull. So uh, that that kind of stuff, we did we did that tons and tons and tons. Um, so anyways, uh, you know, and then with your with your slants and your movements, uh, we had to teach them that, that was where your, your weight distribution and your stance should empower your ability to do your job. So, you know, if, if you're slanting to the inside, your weight needs to be distributed to your outside leg and your outside hand in order to slant correctly. And, and if you're, and if the wrong hand is down, like if you're, if it's a same side slant, then uh, you know you need to balance up your stance. And it doesn't, your your stagger foot doesn't need to be as deep, and it almost needs to be a four point stance. Anyways, yeah, um, that kind of stuff, man, was was like it took a long, long time to get there. You know, but uh, uh, I think the kids over the over over a long period of time. If you're if you're if you're doing it consistently, if you're coaching them consistently, uh, that kind of stuff can pay huge dividends in the end. Yeah, and and I think what you're talking about is uh, you know kind of like what we were talking about earlier with the, with your young guys is you know you start small and and a a uh, something you know a, a guy that we both uh, have worked with and and that uh, really brought us together for this podcast was was Clint Fuller and he mentioned this and we had another coach mention this was you teach things you break things down into concepts and kind of teaching concepts and it's the same thing for defensive line you know you get them in a stance and then you talk about how that stance is going to help them you know progress to the next step which is you know if you're wanting to slant inside or if you want to slant outside then your stance you know you adjust your, your your weight distribution within that stance to help you get there and then once you take that mm-hmm. step, it's your eye discipline, right? I mean, your eye discipline is going to help you diagnose what that offensive lineman is trying to do to you so that you can fight that pressure. So it all stacks on top of each other and builds on each other. Uh, and so when you are able to, to, to teach those details of that, fundam- of, that, of that position, then those guys are able to, uh, to, you know, to progress and, and really are not making a lot of those fundamental mistakes as they, as they get older. Yeah, I think I, I, to, to piggyback off what you just said, I, those those kinds of conceptual, like if you can get a kid to understand conceptually what's happening, game day, man, is so much easier. Yeah. Golly, it's yeah. so easy to, to talk to a kid who may not understand everything that's happening on the offensive side of the ball, but understands what's happening in his little world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, he, and he can verbalize it to you, and he can tell you, well, Coach, they're washing me, you know, like that helps so much. And then you can, and then you can provide adjustments, right? you know, little micro adjustments on game day and they can, and they understand and they can execute those adjustments. Right. Right. And it goes back to like what you're talking about or we're talking about culture earlier. You know, just when you said you're talking to your kid and he said, coach, he's washing me. And that's an example of y'all speaking the same language. Like he's able to tell you 
in your language what's happening to them. So, okay, okay, well, if that's what's happening, here's what we need to do, and here's how we fix it, and here's how we can make an adjustment. And so that goes back to, you know, you're all speaking the same language, which helps you be more effective uh, on game day. So you were a D-line, outside linebacker guy who became a coordinator. And, and you know, it seems that a lot of coordinators these days are, are secondary guys. And, and I can understand that with, you know, most offenses uh, being very, you know, pass heavy and, and, and with the, uh, you know, with, with the popularity of RPOs and things like that, that, that why, why a lot of, a lot of, uh, coaches would want their 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 coordinators being secondary guys, but you know you being a guy who who was a front seven guy who became a coordinator, uh, give or what would be some advice that you would have for guys you know from that your same position group D line or, or front seven guys who would like to be a coordinator. Well, you know, so if you're if you're trying to be a coordinator as a defensive or a linebacker guy, man, the, the the very first thing that you should do is is learn your craft, right? So. I need to learn exactly everything that I need to know, and I need to be a sponge and soak up everything I need to know about defensive line play. I mean, it doesn't. It, if, if if you run across a respectable coach that knows what he's talking about, then listen up, shut your mouth, and listen because yeah. that's a huge. I man, I can't tell you. For the first two years, I didn't say anything. I mean, I just <laughs> everything anybody said to me, I wrote. I wrote it down, you know. And, yeah. And uh, I, I had to really, really think about what my kids were doing and what I was asking my kids to do and what the defense was asking my kids to do in order to understand my position. And so then once, you know, once you really become comfortable with your position and you're, you're constantly learning, you're constantly adjusting and adapting, then you can start asking questions about how your position fits into the greater system and how it fits into the front seven and how, how the linebacker fits are based on what my defensive line is doing. Uh, And if, and you know, the, the lucky coaches, the ones that are the ones that are fortunate in the profession, have a coordinator that's willing to facilitate um, those kinds of discussions. Yeah. Well, Coach, why? Yeah. You know, if if I ask my coordinator when I was a young coach, Coach, why are we slanting? He's not going to take it personal. He's he knows that I'm a young coach asking a question, and and that I that I want to understand. And if and if you've established your your reputation as a guy who wants to learn and wants to understand, then that question's not going to be a problem for a defensive coordinator. He's going to say, you know what, I, I respect the fact that you want to know more, and and here's the time to ask those questions and yeah. from there, and take it from there. Um, and, you know, the tough part about the back end, man, is that that's, you know, it's a long, long process. Like, they, you're talking about two entirely different animals. The good thing for me was I had a little bit of defensive back experience, you know, from my Texas days. But, man, that I'll tell you, even even with that experience, I felt like, you know, I I, I mean, I'll always be chasing Fuller. He's, a, he's always a – he's like a – he never stops, man, never slows down. But – but man, that guy's that guy's knowledge in the back end is is unmatched, you know. So yeah. you uh, everybody's a specialist, and everybody knows a lot about a lot. And and man, if you don't have a ton of experience in the back end, you have you have to lean on you have to lean on your coaches, and yeah. you got to trust your coach your your coaching staff that you know they know their players and and they understand what those players can and can't do. And I mean, it would it would be the same if a de- if a if a a DB's guy want to take over the front seven, you know, and be calling place for the front seven. You, you can't be willing to, you can't be willing to nod your head and say yes, sir, if you know it's something that your kids can't do. 
you know, like there, there ha- that 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 thing has to has to go both ways. So, yeah. um, for a front seven guy that wants to be a, a a coordinator, you need to soak up as much as you possibly can. The the other thing that I will say is that every good coach I've ever known has coached on both sides of the ball. So yeah. you can say you want to be a defensive coordinator, but until you understand the offense and what's happening and how it's structured and where they're trying to attack you, uh, you you know you don't really know what you're talking about because. Yeah. It's, it's, it's as important to understand the offensive objective as it is to design and build and, and create pressures and base fronts. and I mean, that's, that stuff is, is really, really important. You must understand the offense. Yeah, yeah. You know, great, great points, Coach. And uh, I, I would also be curious to, to find out, you know, what, what was the – when you make that transition from position coach to coordinator, what's, what's the, the, the toughest part uh, or what was the toughest part for you personally – uh, from making that change from from position coach to coordinator, you know, for me, uh, it it wasn't necessarily that I went from a position coach to coordinator. That was it was that I was on an entirely new staff, yeah. you know, and 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 that that piece of it was um, understanding the coaches on staff and what they were willing to do and what they were capable of doing, and uh, you know, and and what previously the defensive coordinator had established as the working norms you know like we i mean i, I just um it's 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 really hard to get everybody on the same page um just because there's i mean i don't i don't know about your experiences but my experience has shown me that there there are coaches that are willing to work all hours of the night and there are coaches that that just can't do that 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 have you know, obligations outside of football that keep them from being able to be around all the time. You know, your your young coaches are are super excited and stay up all night and sleeping at the office. And but um, you know, that's not everybody. And right. so you have you, you have to really communicate. You have to do a good job communicating what is you know what is everyone's limitation. Like like how much can we meet? How much how much you know? When do you guys need to get out of here? Um, that was a that was a big issue for me because you know. Moving from one staff to another, the expectations and the way that those coaches act and respond and behave is entirely different from one place to another. So, yeah. uh, it's uh, you know that was definitely a, a a tough a tough piece. The other the other piece is you know for a long time you're you build up uh, this system in your head, you know, and and how these pieces fit together and what works and. Um, technically what you you have seen work and and then you know you step into a meeting room and you're talking to coaches about how you think the defense should be structured and some of those guys don't like the way that you've got it structured or they don't think that their kids can do what you're asking them to do man that's that's a tough thing you know yeah. it's, it's a tough yeah. thing to swallow your pride and, and to and to take criticism the right way and to trust that those coaches know what they're talking about and uh you know at that's a personally, man, you, you have all this excitement about, about what you believe being a coordinator is. And a lot of it is, is, is making, making everyone feel bought in, right. That they have a, that yeah. they have ownership within the defense and, uh, and, and giving everybody an opportunity to contribute. Like that's a, that's a tough thing, you know, especially yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm definitely a, a type A, you know, I like things to be a certain way and, uh, uh, giving up some of that control is tough. Yeah. Yeah. 
For sure. And that's, you know, that's probably, you know, when you talk about guys, you know, moving into the, to their, to the next uh, rung up the ladder, whether it be to, you know, to be a varsity coach from a junior high job, to be a, a position coach or be a coordinator, even be a head coach that a lot of times it's the things, the things that we don't think about are the things that end up being the biggest challenges, you know, uh, managing egos and managing uh, coaches and their different personalities and getting all of them to, to, to mesh together. And, and, and as you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, pull it all in the same direction is a, t- as a thing that, that, you know, any coach looking to advance needs to be prepared to be able to do. Yeah, certainly. That's, it's a, it's, it's a lot easier said than done, man. Yeah. <laughs> I wish it was yeah. easy to do is what you just wrapped up is what you just summarized. Yeah. 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 Well, you're right. So we talked earlier at the top of the episode about you playing at, at Texas, and, and obviously we're there for the the 05 National Championship. Tell, talk to us about your most memorable game as a player for the Longhorns. Uh, and I, I'm going to go ahead and take the National Championship game out of the equation and, and talk to us about, besides that game, what was your most memorable game as a player? Oh, man. Uh, well, there were, I mean, there were definitely – there were definitely some really, really good ones in there. I, I, I mean, the national championship game was obviously really, really fun. But uh, man, leading up, leading up the season before, as I was a, I was a redshirt sophomore, um, and uh, we were playing uh, Oklahoma State. And man, you know, two for two years in a row in 2004 and 2005, Texas fell behind. You know, like embarrassingly. Yep being beaten in the first in the first half of both of those games yep and those and then we we would come back and win and man you you want to talk about feeling the momentum shift and change that was those two games were unbelievable i mean just like watching vince young take over in 2005 uh i mean that was you know you i think you you've probably seen the highlight where he pump fakes oh yeah jumps up in the air yep yeah he runs down the sideline takes off to his right uh, and, and yeah, pump fakes and yeah. that kid jumps up in the air. Yep. Yeah, that was that man. That game, wow, was unbelievable. Well, and and not to mention that was the only game that I ever scored a touchdown in, which was pretty awesome. So, uh, that that game in 2005, man, was 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 something else. It was it was pretty phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And those are you know, that's, there's there's always some of those games with with every team that that goes on a championship run where. Just one of those games where they come out flat and they have to overcome, uh, overcome a lot of adversity and 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 those those teams that those those teams that are, uh, you know, championship caliber teams always find a way to do that and that was definitely a trademark of of the Vince Young era there at Texas. Uh, so you you got to stay on as you mentioned, stay on and GA uh, for for Coach Akina and then Coach Muschamp there at Texas. So. Uh, anytime I have a guy on here who GA'd, I always like to hear their, their best GA stories. So, uh, give us some of your best <laughs> GA stories from your days at Texas. <laughs> man, there's a bunch of those. So, man, the, the, so, I mean, I will say as a coach, man, like, so 90, 95% of the time I was so delusionally tired that I, you know, I couldn't even, <laughs> uh, I would just laugh for no good reason, you know, or, yeah. <laughs> you know, I had yeah. no idea what was going on, but. Getting to, I will say, when Will Muschamp showed up at Texas uh, to be the coordinator in for the the 2008 season, um, that listening to him and Dwayne Aquina bounce ideas off of off of one another and listen to Will talk about his defensive system and the way it was structured, 
and listening to Akina, you know, bounce his rules off of route combinations and formations. And, and uh, man, that was some of the most phenomenal football that, you know, that I'll ever, ever be a part of. I mean, those guys are so smart and yeah. uh, just so deeply involved and, and uh, passionate about what they were doing. Um, that those those meetings, some of those meetings were were unbelievable. Um, but man, other than that, like it, I, just the work that went into being a GA was so crazy. Like we, you know, me and there's another coach. He he coached at Texas. He coached running back to Texas for a little while. He was at uh, Tulane, I believe. His name was Anthony Johnson. He used to call him Juice, and he played running back at Texas. But man, sometimes we would just be sitting in the, the GA office and we'd be pounding out data or printing reports or whatever. And one of the 10,000 things we were asked to do. And we would just look at each other and start laughing, man. Like, and we just couldn't stop, (laughs) you know? And it was because we were so bloody tired. Just, we we couldn't even hardly stand up. Yeah. But, uh, those were, those were really, really good times, you know? And and another, (laughs) another GA story, man, is we, you know, I, my job as a GA on game day was to be up in the booth and to call out personnel. And so, you know, you've got this, you know, some of these teams, man, you're looking at, I mean, you're looking at Baylor from back in the day, you know, looking at like 20 something personnel groupings. And yeah, yeah. anyways, you know, you, you're watching tight ends run off the field and wide receivers run on and running backs run off and fullbacks run on. And, and our job, you know, we, and we would, we would see uh, Will's call sheet for the day and, and 95% of his call sheet was based on, what personnel was on the field? Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, I'm not calling it. I'm not calling a 12 personnel call versus 10 personnel grouping. Like, that's not happening. Right. Well, uh, man, I don't even recall the game. I I, I blocked it from my memory. <laughs> but uh, the the team, I believe it, it may have been Oklahoma State. Actually, um, we were up in the box, and I got my binoculars, and I'm looking down on the field, and uh, will and uh, Will is calling for the for the for the personnel from the sideline. Personnel, 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 and I'm watching them come in. One, two, three. I see three receivers. Oh man! I and I call out ten, ten personnel, ten personnel. Well, the deal was they had brought an extra lineman into the onto the field, right? And yeah. and I didn't see him. It just looked like they were all huddled up together, bunched together. And so I call ten personnel. Well, that's not ten personnel. That's that's heavy personnel. Yeah, and he makes the wrong call in heavy, and I cost the University of Texas a timeout on defense. And let me tell you, that 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 ain't pretty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I got an earful through the uh, through the headset. Yeah, is is nasty. Yikes. So, anyway, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> you know, that's just one of those you just got to own it, I guess. And and uh, yes, sir, I'll uh, I'll get it fixed. <laughs> I'll get it fixed next time, coach. Yeah, yeah. Because there's no there's no response that you can give that's gonna, I'm sure, soften the blow of of his wrath in that moment. No, and, and I'll and I'll tell you, anybody who watches college football and and sees him act the way he acts, that's the way he is, man. Yeah, he is 100 percent, 100 percent fired up, 100 percent of the time. Yeah, he's a he, he's an incredible football coach, man, and he is and he is he is in it. So. Well, let's we'll, we'll get you out of here on this one. What's um, you know, as again as we mentioned, uh, 
at the top of the episode, you know, you're no longer coaching now. So what's the one thing you miss the most about coaching? Oh man. You know, I mean, uh, the easy answer, the easy answer is the kids, you know, and, and, and it kind of is the kids, but the real answer is like, man, the fire inside the kids, you know, when you, when you have a kid that's truly bought into a program and really believes what you're doing and, and loves being a part of what you guys are doing, man, there is nothing like, and it doesn't even matter whether the kid is a, a, a starter or a JV player or a freshman player or a, a division one athlete, man. When, when a kid looks at you and you can see he's, he's bought in, he yeah. believes Yeah, like that to me is, was, is the thing that I miss most. I mean, and you know, I, I miss the coaches too. Um, I still talk to a bunch of those guys regularly, man, but you know, it just, it, it's, it's tough not being around the kids anymore. Yeah. That, that was, I, you know, I'll still have kids, a, a kid or two call me or text me or tweet. And, um, but man, it's that, I mean, it really is. It really is the kids. And just, yeah. That's, that's the one thing that I miss. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I think we more, can definitely more than, more than any other. <laughs> yeah. And I think we can all, all relate to what you just mentioned there is, is you know that that you know that look in those in the kids' eyes when 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 they finally get it and their light comes on and and then it it it, it just uh, it's contagious you know it spreads from 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 one guy to the next and then and that's when the, the the magic happens when special things really happen and and you're right that is something you know I, I haven't really thought about it that way and, and as as being something that I would miss but I can definitely see where that would be something that that you miss because where else are you going to get that. Um, yeah, you know, and, uh, yeah good profession. question because so, it ain't happening over on this end anymore. <laughs> no, so that's that's definitely something if, if for us as coaches who are in it still to, to remember and to never take for granted because that really is a special thing that's definitely unique to our profession. Well, Coach Tweedy enjoyed it and, and always, uh, you know, just enjoy uh, talking football and, and, and really appreciate you know you sharing your knowledge with us. Man, I appreciate it. This is an awesome deal. Thank you for uh, thank you for the experience. Tell you what, I really enjoyed chopping it up with Coach Tweedy, and appreciate him sharing with us today. Okay, so we uh, we've been doing this for the last couple of weeks now. We're in the third round of the playoffs here in Texas, and each week I'm telling a story about a memorable playoff game from my time as a coach. And today our story comes from. Uh, my first coaching job at, at, at Lafayette County High School in Oxford, Mississippi. Now, uh, let's be clear. It's spelled like Lafayette or Lafayette, but in, in North Mississippi, they say Lafayette, okay? Uh, if you say Lafayette, they'll, they'll just look at you funny. So it's Lafayette County High School there in Oxford. Uh, the year was 2010. We were undefeated, and we were ranked uh, number one in 4A, and we were getting ready to, to play a third-round playoff game against a team uh, not too far away from us in town, not too far away from us, probably uh, 30, 45 minutes away, a town called New Albany. And, uh, you know, in Mississippi, uh, outside of maybe like uh, South Haven, kind of outskirts of Memphis area, uh, Jackson, greater Jackson area, and then down on the coast like Biloxi and some of those places, a lot of Mississippi is rural. 
so you have a bunch of these little bitty towns, uh, but but a lot like they are here in Texas. You know, they they just the whole town shuts down uh, on Friday night for the football game, and this week was no different. Except really, we were undefeated, and, and New Albany was undefeated, and this was this was a game that a lot of people saw coming early on in the season, and there was a a, a lot of debate as to who was who was better and, and what team. Uh, deserve to be number one, and all that was going back and forth. And so now, here we are, it was round three, and we we're finally going to get to settle it on the field. So uh, we, we loaded up on our buses, and we drove over that night for the game. You know, it was a pretty short drive. Uh, but we got into town that night, and I remember we hit a traffic jam as we're pulling into town. And, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal at first. You know, okay, cool, we're, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be a few minutes off schedule, but no big deal. Well, it ended up being a pretty bad traffic jam, and the reason was because everybody was trying to get into the stadium for the game, and so we got to the game uh, really a lot later than we than we had expected, and so it was one of those things. We I remember they pulled the buses up and we got out, and there was just a huge crowd of people, and so they had you know highway patrolmen clearing a, a path for us to walk to our locker room, and you know there were fans from from their school, fans from our school, all mixed in, so. It was a pretty loud crowd, so we're, we're making our way through the crowd to our locker room, and we, you know, get dressed in our locker room. We're going out for pregame warmups, and uh, the stands are already full. And they had, you know, temporary bleachers set up on the track, and and people sitting out in the grass, and all. I mean, it was just a really, really crazy environment for a football game. And uh, I remember we're warming up, and and uh, their student section. Uh, is already filled up already. You know they're already in a uh, you know full swing, and and they're 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 uh, taunting our kids and and uh, making fun of them and just getting after them pretty good. And so anyway, we finally kick off and it was uh, there's really no other way to say it. It, it was a, it was a beat down uh, on our end uh, from from really from the word go until until the, until the final whistle. We ended up winning that game 35 to nothing. And um, really, uh, it, it was it was just a cool game because obviously, yeah, we won, we won big, but uh, all the all the atmosphere surrounding it, and then to uh, and so be able to come out and, and beat a really good team in New Albany like that in the way that we did uh, gave us a lot of confidence heading through the rest of the playoffs, and, and and so that was just a really cool game and a really great atmosphere, and and um, actually shout out to to, to Coach uh, Cody Stubblefield who's who's now the head coach. There at New Albany, he was an assistant at New Albany. Then he came over to, to coach with us at Lafayette for a couple of years, and now he's the head coach over there at New Albany. And I know that that's still a great, great football school and great football town, and, and they got some great things going on over there. So shout-out to those guys at, at New Albany, and shout-out to those guys at, at Lafayette who lost a, a tough one this, this past weekend uh, to, uh, to West Point. But uh, I love keeping up with, with, with the Commodores on Twitter and, and, uh, and, and know they got some great things going on. So, anyway, that's our story this week, our playoff story from round three from back in 2010. All right, so let's get to our quote of the day, which comes from Coach Nick Saban, and it is, the fact of the matter is, if you want to be good, you really don't have a whole lot of choices because it takes what it takes. And that will do it for us this week. Thank you. Sincerely for tuning in each week, the feedback that, that I get from those of you who do listen is really important to me, and, and honestly, it's, it's what motivates me to keep putting out episodes each week, so thank you for your support and your encouragement. Anyway, happy Thanksgiving. Have a great day with your loved ones on Thursday. Remember, pass the food to your right, say no to canned cranberry sauce and giblet gravy, and please keep your pads down. <laughs>